Casino. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at HighFiveCasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumberFiveCasino.com. I'm going out with the girls this weekend. Nails done, outfit stunner, and my skin. I know it's going to be glowing because I glammed up my shower routine with new Olay Indulgent Moisture Body Wash. It smells so luxurious and deeply moisturizes with its super rich, creamy lather that's bursting with vitamin B3 complex. So my skin glows and my confidence grows. Try new Olay Indulgent Moisture Body Wash for glowing skin in just 14 days. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com slash governance. IBM, let's create. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast that you have heard me introduce, like, probably, well, probably like 70 or 80 times by now, but you, 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 yeah, you, you have heard me introduce this podcast enough times that you probably know what it's about. If you don't, it's about things falling apart and then putting it back together again. And today we are doing a historical things tried to go back together and then fell apart again episode. And with me, I'm, I'm your host, Christopher Wong, and with me is... Uh, Nicholas Scott, who's a PhD candidate in Latin American history at UVA. Uh, Nicholas, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm, exci- I'm excited to have you. And today we're going to be talking about something that we've we've mentioned before on a few other episodes that, that we've done about Chile and about the Allende period. But I think, like, well, we definitely have not given enough attention and I think gets less attention in the sort of mainstream like left analysis of, of what happened to Allende and what was going on in that period, which is the Cordones. And Nick has written about this a lot and is also writing more about this and is doing research. Actually, do, do, do you, do you care? Do you mind if I mention that you're in Chile doing research right now? No, totally. I'm, you know, that's where I am. I'm here. Uh, two years after the pandemic took me away, I've finally been able to come back uh, and resume my research. Yeah. And so, Nicholas, I think in your work, the thing that I think is is different about it than a lot of the the stuff that you'll read about Allende and about the Cordones is the sort of historicization of it. And so I I, won, I was wondering if we, if we can start back, I guess, in the 60s and talk a bit about the sort of political situation that gets you to this sort of revolutionary moment. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think that uh, it's important that we start at an earlier moment uh, to really understand uh, how the Cordones emerge as a specific um, culture, a specific urban space across the city of Santiago. Uh, You know, the the English translation of of the Cordones Industrialis would essentially just be industrial belts. So you can think of these as sort of sectors of the city uh, where the majority of sort of heavy industry had been based. Um, And these sectors themselves 
were sort of remnants of the 19th century, uh, specifically the railroad lines that would uh, sort of the, the main thoroughfares into the city of Santiago from the countryside. Um, you know, over the course of the early 20th century, uh, as you have the development of industry in, in Chile and in Santiago specifically, these are the same areas then where these uh, factories are, are being developed because you have pre-existing sort of transportation networks that they're able to take advantage of. Um, the problem is, is that, you know, industrialization uh, happens sort of in fits and starts uh, in, in the history of Chile. Uh, and the other sort of problem is the, the problem of transportation itself. So, for example, in the 1930s, there's an urban plan that gets developed for Santiago Centro, uh, or the, the central part of, of Santiago. Uh, and they bring in an Austrian urban planner, Karl Brunner, to help with this. Uh, and while Karl Brunner essentially tries to do for Santiago um, what Hausmann did for France, right? Widen boulevards, uh, make the city more accessible to new forms of transportation, right? Ideally the car. Uh, buses, things of that nature. Uh, the problem is, is that he limited his uh, work and his studies, as I said, just to the center of Santiago itself. Uh, the other problem is, is that once Brunner leaves Santiago, the plan that's actually put into effect um, isn't necessarily all of his plan. It was sort of a patchwork that legislators um, sort of pick and choose from when they put this plan into effect. And so in between the 30s and the 1960s, you know, a lot is happening. Uh, primarily, you have these sort of twin processes of industrialization, sort of rapid industrialization that's taking place. But you also have this other process, which is uh, rural migration, sort of internal migration. And this isn't a process that's limited to just Chile, right? This is a region-wide process that's happening all across Latin America. Uh, and you're having sort of two uh, factors at play in this migration, right? You're having the push factor from the countryside, right? The lack of opportunity, lack of jobs, lack of secure employment um, from the countryside. And then you're also having the pull factor, which is, you know, these industries that are springing up in the city, as well as the sort of infrastructure that a city would afford relative to the countryside. Uh, and these two processes sort of come to a head in the 1950s um, in Chile. And by the end of the 1950s, uh, it's clear to a growing set of people, um, including Juan Parioquia, who is an architect, um, that something needs to be done. There needs to be a new urban plan for the city of Santiago. Uh, and this urban plan, what they try to do is it's the first time that there's a sort of intercommunal, uh, which communal in this sense would be a rough translation to municipality. Um, in English. So it's really the first sort of intermunicipal urban plan that tries to link networks together. And this is actually the first time that this word uh, cordon industrial appears in like an official government document, right? That's the first time um, that urban planners themselves are thinking about zones of the city that are going to be specifically for industry. And so the idea is that they want to move a lot of the industry that has sprung up in those intervening years from the early 20th century uh, that was located more in the center of the city. They want to move it out of the center of the city, you know, largely for things of pollution, safety, all of the things that go along with heavy industry. They want it further on the periphery. Uh, and so that's part of this urban plan that uh, essentially tries to zone, basically zone um, these, uh, these sectors. Uh, and so that's really where my dissertation starts. That's where my research really sort of starts the stories in um, the late 1950s, early 1960s, when these urban plans are taking effect. And so what I'm interested in then is, you know, how did the creation of these specific sectors of the city as industrial zones, how did they then give rise to an urban culture uh, that will then manifest itself uh, in a very revolutionary moment once Allende comes to power. Yeah, and, and I think that that's an interesting way to look at it because I think, you know, because the, the 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 process of sort of industry moving from the center of the urban core outwards is something that happens really across the world, although mostly after that period. And, and that, that that was one of the th one of the things that struck me about it. That's interesting. That I want to ask you about, which is. So to, to what extent is this is this a different process than the kind of like, you know, the, the, the kind of suburbanization that you see of, of industry in the U.S., for example, in, in like the 1980s? Or is it closer to 
Well, you know, I mean, I've, talk, I've talked about this, I guess, on the show in, in the Chinese context, too, where you have, I mean, mostly pollution stuff has seen, like, some industries sort of, like, I mean, just literally getting pushed into, into rural areas. Is it, is it, like, is, is it, like, those same kind of impulses, or is there a different kind of, um, like, relation? I mean, like, how, how far out of the city, like, is this stuff, like, getting pushed to? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a wonderful question. Um, and, you know, it is actually important. This is important to remember that at this time, the city of Santiago, um, you know, just outside the city of Santiago is, is still largely rural, right? Where, where the first cordon will emerge on the southwestern side of the city is, is still a largely rural part of the city itself. Uh, and so it is very similar to the dynamics that you're describing in that it is pushing, you know, away from where people are living, right, to more rural places where there is more land, both to build, right, so there is the availability of space, uh, but there's also less people living in that space. So from the planner's perspective, uh, it's considered better because the sort of, um, you know, chemical and heavy metal runoffs from a lot of the metalworking factories, yeah. all of these things, and the pollution from smokestacks, et cetera, um, you know, it, are less harmful. The problem then becomes, however, um, that the, as I mentioned, the rural migration and people that are migrating to the city, you know, there's not space in the center of the city for these people to live, right? So they're moving then to these same areas. So in some senses, the sort of historical dynamics of the region are undercutting the sort of success of the planners when it comes to making these zones away from the city itself. Um, and I guess I guess that that would be something also that that's interesting about this, which is that I think because like you know the the sort of like decentralization of industry and the, the push into rural areas, I think largely did not produce a kind of like radical working class culture. But 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 it seems like you have this countervailing factor here, which is that you have a bunch of people who are like who are, who are coming into industrial work for the first time out of the countryside. Which tends to be a very radical faction. Like, is 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 that, is that one of the things that gives you this sort of radical culture instead of the kind of like total disintegration of the class that you see in the sort of later versions of this? This is such a beautiful question, and this this question really lays at the heart of my research. So, if we scope out just for a bit and think about this historiographically, uh, in Chile there is a vein of historiography that is very concerned with these rural migrants which once they arrive in the city are referred to as pobladores right which we can roughly translate as sort of urban poor right um and they're considered a sort of capital s social subject that is distinct from a worker or from a working class um from a sociological point of view right um and the reason this is is because a lot of them um while they are workers you know, they are part of the working class functionally. Their sort of social concern and the social movement that is bound up or known as the sort of poblador movement is a movement for housing, right? Because they are arriving at these sort of vacant parts of the city, um, the they bring with them the sort of, as you mentioned, their own histories of struggle from the countryside, uh, of which the sort of main tactic is the toma or seizure. Right. And so what they will do when they arrive in these places of land is that they will seize these lots and they will erect a structure on it. Uh, in doing so, then they would use that to stake a claim to pro- at, as a claim of property rights, right, as a claim for their own proper home and everything that would go with it within um, within a city infrastructure, right, utilities, sewage, etc. Um, that's what they would leverage then as a claim for that. And so my project is essentially trying to break down this analytic barrier that has separated the poblador from the worker in the historiography, specifically in the historiography of things like the Cordones and the popular unity years during Allende. Because as I mentioned, many of these people, once they're moving to the cities and you know moving into what would be referred to as either campamentos or poblaciones, uh, you know, they're looking for work and they're finding work at a lot of these factories that are nearby where they're moving. Now, in doing so, however, they're coming into contact. They're sort of mixing with uh, the older generation of um, migrants that migrated from the north of Chile, right, from the mining sector in the north of Chile following the Great Depression, which is the sort of historical birth of the labor movement in Chile, the nitrate sector, Um 
in the far north of Chile, which, you know, following the development of sort of synthetic forms of explosives, uh, nitrates are not saltpeter specifically is not as high in demand anymore. Uh, so you have a lot of uh, people migrating to the city to begin working in industries there, right? So those sort of older working class who also have their own sort of history of struggle, history of tactics, et cetera, and this newer uh, form of worker, the poblador, right, are mixing and they're sort of mixing in these areas in specific. And that uh, to me is why it's so important to think about the cordones as more than just an organization that emerges in the early 1970s and really think about them as a space, as a geographic space that uh, develop their own unique forms of local culture informed by these larger, more macro historical processes. Yeah, that, 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 that seems like a much more I don't know if I don't know if productive is the right word, although it is. But I think, yeah, I I think that is a a a better way of thinking about it than what you usually see. Because yeah, that that kind of the the fact that yeah the the, the fact that you have multiple different essentially like so you have you have multiple different so it's like sociological classes mixing. You have you have their tactics sort of fusing, and that developing its own. Th- culture that's that's distinct i think from a lot of the you know because this 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 is a this is a period of time like the the late 1960s early 1970s is like the golden age of the factory occupation and i think you know i I think you 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 can draw similarities between that and and between the cardones but i think i don't know i mean it it it, it, italy is the version of this that 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 i know the best and that one i guess sort of also has a similar dynamic of you you get you get a bunch of uh you you have this mixing of of sort of the old urban working class but then you have a bunch of um yeah you have this huge labor migration from from the south from the rural areas that that mixes in there and I, i i'm wondering i guess like when when you talk about sort of the culture of this how how much of that is something that you think is like a a a distinct product of like this exact configuration of of sort of social classes hitting each other and to what extent it's kind of like a process that we've that you 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 find in other places where you have uh you have these sort of migrant worker like first generation migrant worker bases hitting these sort of older industrial working classes yeah no i think that you're spot on right i think that this is um, a, a larger global history, right? This is a moment in which you are having a lot of migration from countryside into the city worldwide, right? You have a lot of French intellectuals at this moment thinking about sort of what does it mean that the city is perhaps becoming the new focus, the sort of new locus of social movements and social actions. You know, what does it mean that the city is dominant over the countryside um, and things like that? What I think is different or not necessarily different, but perhaps unique in the Chilean case um, is that this is, um, you know, you have a, a, a a culture in Chile uh, that is known the world over for its political culture, right? Everyone at this moment was thinking and talking politically uh, and talking about big, you know, grand ideas of politics, not just, you know, sort of everyday politics, but how did everyday politics inform these larger sort of social struggles, right? This is still a moment when socialism is on the table, right? Um, And so you have, you know, not that this is different than other places in the world. Clearly, as you mentioned in Italy, socialism is very much still on the table. Communism is very much still on the table there as well. Um, But in Chile, what is different is that there is this idea that one could perhaps legislate socialism, right? Or that one could use the means of democracy to achieve socialism, right? That's what's going to make the Allende government so unique in this moment. Um, But what also makes the Cordones unique is this sort of relationship between social space and physical space in the city. So for example, the very first Cordon that emerges in 1972, Sirios Maipu, as I mentioned earlier, on the southwest of the city, that one as I mentioned, because it had such close contact with the rural sector on that edge, had a lot more solidarity between rural laborers and factory laborers, such that by 1973, you have factory laborers going out of their factory 
and helping rural laborers seize their properties and hold their properties um, away from the, the, the landowners, essentially, right? And claiming sort of a redistributive, um, you know, land for those who work it type of strategy. This is, say, different from the cordon that my dissertation is focused on, Vacuna Macena, which, as, as I mentioned, a much larger segment of pobladores living nearby it, right? Uh, and so you have a much larger solidarity between the pobladores and between factory workers. And what makes that even more unique in this case is the role of the Catholic Church. And this is really one of the sort of new things that my dissertation is trying to do, is what is the role of the Catholic Church here? So, for example, the Catholic Church uh, historically within the and within the historiography as well, um, has always been associated with the Poblador movement, right? Because of this sort of connection to the countryside, because of the church's sort of, uh, you know, missionary kind of work and going out into the population, you know, poorer populations, especially following Vatican II, um, that uh, in which they begin to sort of have more outreach uh, into the poor sectors. Um, but it's never really seen or rather very few scholars have thought about or looked at what does this mean then for those individuals who may have lived in a población, but who worked in a factory? In other words, what was the relationship between the sort of social pastoral message of the church and the sort of socialism of a factory worker? Uh, and in the case of Acuna Macena, there's actually very strong links here. So specifically the San Cayetano Parish, which is located just to the west of the Cordon proper, um, was, was fundamental in helping some of the workers um, establish unions uh, in, in the Cordon. So, for example, the Sumar textile factory, which was functionally a city unto itself. This, this uh, textile company... Uh, had a series of different factories within uh, its property. So it had a cotton plant, it had a nylon plant, it had a silk plant, and it had a polyester plant. And each of these different plants then each had their own um, unions. And uh, in Chile, in the labor code in Chile from the 1930s, there were two different types of unions per uh, factory or per plant. You had the industrial union, which we could think of as the blue collar worker union, uh, and then you had uh, empleados union, which we can think of as a more white collar uh, union. These would be the sort of professionals in the factory, the sort of technicians, uh, the engineers, right? Not so much the manual laborers, but everyone else in the factory. And in the case of Sumar, specifically the cotton plant itself, um, in the late 1960s, when they're trying to found their union for the first time, they don't have anywhere to go to find it, to, to found it, right? Because they can't do it in the factory itself because management and the bosses will crack down on it. They don't have their own local yet because they haven't founded a union. And so what they ultimately do is they reach out to the parish priest in San Cayetano who is, you know, who offers them help and in doing so offers them a space to hold their first union vote. Uh, and that's actually how the union of Sumar gets founded. Now, Sumar will go on to play a major role both in the Cordones and then after the Cordones during the dictatorship. It's a, it's a very, um, very important factory uh, in, in this history. Um, but it's often overlooked that, you know, the church played a very fundamental role in the sort of larger history of the working class formation of the Sumar workers. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at HighFiveCasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumberFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM, let's create. Dad deserves something really nice for Father's Day. But let's face it, we usually don't do it. Big gifts are for Mother's Day. 
Picking something up on the way is for Father's Day. Well, let's make Father's Day something this year with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. It whips up over 60 premium cocktails on demand, each ready at the push of a button. And right now, you get $50 off the Bartesian Cocktail Maker when you buy one pack of Dad's favorite cocktail capsules. Dad will publicly love that you saved 50 on the countertop machine that crafts premium cocktails on demand. And he'll secretly love that you splurged on him for Father's Day with the gift of a Bartesian. Because the only thing that lets Dad know he's the world's number one dad better than a world's number one dad coffee mug is an artisan cocktail in his hand. Make dad's Father's Day and Father's Day cocktails with all natural juices and bitters without making any mess at all. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash father to get $50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. I mean, it brings us to one of the things about this period that's, I guess, becoming to be better understood. But I think if you're a person who has not spent time looking at this, might look kind of weird, which is that, yeah, the, the, it's just that the Catholic Church in this period in a, in a lot of Latin America, like, takes, I mean, especially after Vatican II, but like, it, it takes this, like, very hard left turn that, yeah, I mean, ha- has all of these causes that, like, you know, like you get like the the Italian version of it is like you get a bunch of priests who are just like 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 clergymen literally doing kidnappings of like random government officials, and I think yeah, I I, I guess in 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 this context, what what's interesting to me, I guess, is yeah, like how how much okay, so like. What is the the you're talking you were talking about the sort of like the 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 sort of pastoralism of of this the sort of like social gospel message is 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 there is there like a divide between the way the church is working in the city and the way it's working in the countryside or is it just sort of like it's all shifting left but they're more the 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 influence of the church is larger in among sort of rural and extra rural people. Oh, that's actually a really good question. And this is actually where I'm in the midst of sort of trying to figure this out specifically. Um, for the past three weeks, I've actually been working in the church archives here in Santiago. Um, and so that's actually the documents that I'm sort of sifting through as as we speak. Um, and so one thing I can say for certain as of now, of what I've been able to sort of uncover is that, you know, the church was not homogenous and it certainly wasn't monolithic, not in Latin America and definitely not in Santiago. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the region itself, following Vatican II, you have the Episcopal Conference of Latin America's second conference that takes place in the 1960s uh, in Medellin. And that's where the sort of li- the idea of liberation theology is born, right? Following Medellin, then in Chile, the, com- the Episcopal Conference of Chile then is basically tasked with determining a way to fit its own pastoralism, its own sort of pastoral plan within these new structures that they, you know, are a party to because they are part of this larger conference in Latin America itself. And so, you know, one thing that I have uncovered in the documents is that this is very much, you begin to see a divide amongst the the bishops, amongst the church hierarchy here that um, are very, you know, 
interested in following this new plan of action, but they're also wary of some of the discourse that is surrounding this. So one example that comes to mind here is the idea of liberation itself, right? We often talk about liberation theology, and we often talk about it as though it was just sort of accepted wholesale by the church in Latin America. Well, a lot of the documents that I'm encountering here are there's great debate over the use of liberation specifically because the idea of liberation is so tied up with Marxism. Yeah. Right. And that is, you know, at this time, the Catholic church as a global institution and Marxism as a global ideology are seen as antithetical. And here, the idea that in the church's view, at least from these documents, the the idea of Marxism that it's talking about when it's using Marxism is very much the Soviet Union. Yeah. Right. It's very much the sort of atheistic approach to the church, to religion that comes out of the early form of Marxism, Leninism from early 20th century. And so there's a great debate on whether or not to use liberation. And ultimately, you know, the those supporting this discourse win out. Um, and, and it is decided that liberation will be the words and the sort of discourse that the parish priests um, will use. But the other big thing that comes out of this, in addition to this sort of discourse of liberation, is this new idea of um, Catholic base communities, right? Is this whole new framework for um, sort of understanding a Christian community, right? Prior to this innovation of the base community, you know, a, a Christian community was defined by the hierarchy of the church, right? You have the sort of congregation, you have your parishes, you have the different um, sort of structural and bureaucratic uh, um, designations that sort of link from a parish upward um, to the sort of church hierarchy itself. Uh, but the base community essentially is saying that, you know, wherever a few people gather, and are studying the word of God or reading scripture or having theological debates, that that should be considered, you know, part of the church, um, should be considered that part of the church. And so in that sense, we can look at, say, San Cayetano Parish and the work that it's doing with workers and the Sumar factory. And sort of this has me thinking about, you know, what does it mean? Uh, you know, what do these base communities look like in practice? Can, is it possible for us to conceive of, workers who are reaching out to their local priest for assistance as perhaps their own Christian-based community. Or furthermore, you know, at this time in Chile, in addition to the leftist political parties, the socialists and the communists, which is, you know, a majority of workers, the Christian Democrats are also a, a large force, right? In 1964, President uh, Eduardo Frey is elected as a Christian Democrat, and he's the sort of what will initiate a process that will culminate with Allende's election in 1970. Um, and by that, I mean, he initiates what he refers as to a revolution in liberty, um, which is sort of a communitarian reformism that is essentially seen as perhaps forestalling a Marxist revolution, a socialist revolution from taking place. But it's incredibly popular amongst working class and workers. Um, and the Christian Democrat Party itself was a, a very wide ranging party that encompassed right-wing elements, but also left-wing elements. Yeah. Can, um, can we, can we talk a bit, a bit more about like what the Christian, Christian Democrats are? Because this is a thing that like doesn't really exist anymore, but was, I think like a, a very important player. Like I mean, there's, there's, there's very powerful Christian democratic parties in Europe. There's very powerful Christian democratic parties like across Latin America. Yeah. Can we, can we talk a bit about like what that is and how that's different from like, you know, how, how it's different from just like, your your generic your generic sort of socialist party and how it's different even from your sort of like I don't know your like labor party social democrats. Yeah, no, I mean this is a, this is a great question, and you're right. This isn't something that is sort of exists in the present moment, so it does seem very foreign to us. Um, but really, what the the sort of wager that the Christian Democrats make is that you know in theory they agree for the need for structural change. Right. In theory, they the alleviation of poverty, a more uh, a more just distribution of wealth. Right. But their ideas of justice and thing, and this is where the Christianity part of the Christian Democrat comes in. Right. Is that it is justice as understood in a Christian sense of justice. Right. Not in a sort of more radical egalitarian sense of justice that's say a socialist or a communist. 
would believe in. Uh, you know, so for a socialist or a communist, the sort of motor of history is class struggle, right? For a Christian Democrat, the motor of history is God and his son, Jesus Christ, right? And that is the sort of, would be, I guess you could think of as the, the main difference. And then how that plays out in practical terms would be in a, for a communist or a socialist, right? You want a sort of radical communism, dictatorship of the proletariat, these types of forms, uh, a very stagist movement through history. For a Christian Democrat, however, it's much more of a communitarian ethic, right? It's much more of a harmonization between, say, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, rather than an overthrowing and an eradication of the bourgeoisie by the proletariat, as it would be for, say, a socialist or a communist. Yeah, and, and I guess that, that's something I want to, like, I, I want to move a bit to talking about Allende briefly, because I think that's an interesting one of the things you're talking about earlier is Allende talking about, okay, well, we can have a democratic path to socialism. And what's what's very interesting to me about both Allende and what's happening in the Cordones is that like, okay, so like that that, that is a that, that idea has been around for a very long time. And like there are a lot of people who take power who are like, okay, we're taking a democratic path to socialism. And then, you know, like like a lot of Weimar, like Germany, right, is, is ruled by, by the, the German Social Democratic Party. And it's like, well, you look at what they do. And they're not really like socialisting. They're most, I mean, you know, they're 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 doing they're doing things like like they're doing things like welfare reform. But that's a very different thing. Well, and you know, and you, you can see like the Labour Party in 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 the UK, for example. Well, like okay, well they'll, they'll nationalize industries, right? But you you don't see the kind of movement against like the the you, you don't see the kind of movement against property and the, the movement against sort of like. Like you, you don't see an actual attempt to like eliminate the bourgeoisie as a class in in the same way that you do about Chile. And so I was wondering, like, what what makes like what what was it about this moment that someone who claimed that actually comes into power and starts doing it and starts doing it in a way that's not just the sort of like you know when most like 90% of the time when someone nationalizes something right it's okay so instead instead of having a boss that is instead of having a boss whose job it is to like make money for the stock market you have a boss who works for the state and there, there there's 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 very little sort of like structural change in how in how the bureaucracy is run there's no change and like your your individual relation to your boss does not change he's still your boss and that isn't what happens in Chile in 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 the in the same way yeah i'm i'm interested why 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 this looks different here i guess <laughs> yeah no i think this is a great question you know and and so to to get to Allende, it is imperative that we start um, with Frey in 1964 mm. and in some senses we can start even in 1957 which is Allende's first attempt at running for president um, at this time, Allende is running um, as essentially uh, the last gasp, you could say, of the popular front, which emerged in the 1930s and into the 1940s, and had successfully united a large swath of the political parties in Chile. And this is what led to that earlier moment of industrialization, largely through the sort of policy known as import substitution industrialization, when in which you know the national industries would be built, they would be protected via tariffs, price controls, and others that would stimulate local growth to produce products that would have otherwise been imported. However, by the late 1950s, things have begun to bottleneck, right? Largely in the Chilean case, because a lot of the countryside is still under control of the latifundio, grand estate, right? And which means that productivity isn't necessarily where it should be, um, but it also means that the labor force that's sort of stuck on the land as well isn't available then for the development of capital goods in industry, right? And the capital goods are what you need to really jumpstart industry wholesale. What Chile does really well is that sort of intermediary phase of making uh, goods for individual consumption, right? Things of things of that nature. Uh, and so what Allende does in 1957 is essentially trying to uh, first run on a platform of industrialization and and to fix inflation, right? Uh, and he narrowly loses. He, he just barely loses the election in 1957. He'll 
who wins is Alessandri wins, uh, and he will essentially adopt a very classical liberal approach, uh, free market reforms, uh, repression of labor, in some senses, freezing of any sort of gains of the labor movement, etc. This ultimately does not work. Right. And so in 1964, you know, shocker, you have calls then for a more revolutionary approach. Well, also what's happening in 1964, uh, right, is we're now in the wake of the Cuban Revolution, which has taken place, which has uh, put the Americas as a hemispheric designation on notice that now it is possible to have uh, sort of a, a revolution via insurrection, via guerrilla warfare be successful, right? And not only be successful, but be successful in defeating the hegemon of the hemisphere, United States. And so what the United States will then do is launch the Alliance for Progress, which is essentially a way of funneling money into reformist-minded governments as a way to appease these calls for revolution, um, but prevent a sort of Marxist revolution from taking place. So in the case of Chile, the Alliance for Progress will funnel many, many uh, amounts of dollars uh, into the Frey administration. Um, and Frey wins the 1964 election handily. Now, there's a great debate to be had on whether or not the, or rather the involvement of the CIA in a sort of scare tactic and fear mongering campaign went on in the 1964 campaign. Unfortunately, we just don't have the documents yet um, for this period, like we do for the 1970s and the lead up to the coup in the 1970s. Um, you know, hopefully one day we'll have a better sense of really what went on that explains such a, a, a lopsided defeat of Allende in 1964. Um, so Frey will come to power in 1964. And actually the agrarian reform in Chile will begin under the Christian Democrats, under Frey's administration, financed in large part by the Alliance for Progress. Um, also the nationalization of copper, which will be fully nationalized under Allende in the 1970s, but it actually exists in a state of so-called negotiated nationalization under Frey, or what Frey would refer to as the Chileanization of copper, in which uh, Chile would take a very small, right, 51, you know, percent controlling uh, in the copper companies, um, but would still have large, uh, the American copper companies, Anaconda and Kinnicott specifically, would still be the ones responsible for running the operations themselves. That, that, that's an interesting, uh, I guess, weird historical thing. Because I know, okay, so like the, the, there, the, there have been a lot of times where the CIA has supported land reform, which is very weird. Like they do it in uh, Japan, for example. And, you know, it, it's seen as seen as one of these things. It's like, okay, well, we have to do land reform in order to like stop an, stop an actual revolution from happening. So we'll do a sort of capitalist version of it. It's interesting to me that Chile does it because I feel like that that's not something that happens in most of the other Latin American states where the CIA gets involved. Um, yeah, well, it's also, I mean, the, the Alliance for Progress is official government policy. Um, you know, Kennedy will be the one that starts the alliance, uh, and then it will continue into the LBJ administration following Kennedy's assassination. Um, and so that is, um, and, and you're right that regionally, the Alliance for Progress is largely a failure. There are, however, a few successes, and Chile was at the time held up as one of the successes and has somewhat been borne out as one of the successes insofar as it is what initiates the agrarian reform in Chile. So, so I guess, so, okay. So what you're saying is that there are, there, there's like, there's, there's a specific group of parties at the U S backs at this period who are trying to do this sort of, who are, who are trying to do some kind of reform. Um, like who, who are trying to do the sort of like the, the class collaboration reform to save off revolution thing. And then, I guess the like later policy becomes just do the do counterinsurgency on behalf of the landowners. Yeah, I mean the the way the Frey, you know, as the Frey administration continues, it becomes clear that his sort of reformist approaches is simply not working. Um, one is just not working on a macroeconomic level, right? Mm -hmm. Inflation is still happening, which has sort of been the, you know enemy number one of the Chilean economy for most of the 20th century, right? Most of the 20th century in Chile is um, presidential administrations and economic economists, economic advisors are all struggling to understand how to control inflation. Um, and, you know, Frey thinks that they can figure it out via these sort of reforms, via the agrarian reform, 
be at the sort of Chileanization of the great mining wealth of the country. Uh, in terms of factory or industry level, they essentially propose this idea of sort of workers' enterprises that is somewhat modeled off the Yugoslavian model, hmm. uh, which is a much more communitarian um, approach, right? As you were saying earlier, you know, the, the boss is still there. Workers do have a stake in control of the enterprise, um, but private property still exists, right? So the I boss guess like, is still the boss. Like with that, like how – to what extent is that – like uh, if, if, if you have this on a scale of like – on the one hand, on like the the extreme end, you have there's like nothing, or maybe workers can own a share of a company. And on the other end is like, I don't know, like a like a 1930s, like a, like a 1937 like anarchist commune in Spain. Like how 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 much control do they actually like? I don't know. Like is 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 this closer to something like the sort of like German co determination system? Like how close to like Yugoslavia is this? Sorry, I'm trying to get a sense of like, yeah, because this is interesting. a lot of this. No, this is fascinating. In fact, one of my sort of dream projects or sort of dream archives to get into would ultimately be the Yugoslavian archives or former Yugoslavian archives, because there is a lot of collaboration taking place between the Yugoslavian left and Chileans at this time. Mm. Um, the problem is, is that a lot of this never really gets off the ground in practice. It is a lot of sort of things that exist on paper, reforms that are proposed, but reforms that never really get implemented, which then has the effect of heightening expectations, yeah. but not delivering on the goods, which pushes people further to the left, right? And pushes them to demand a more radical solution, which they find in the 1970 campaign of Salvador Allende, right? And this is what really gets us to, the, to Allende's victory, which is the sort of failures of the Frey administration to achieve the sort of revolution in liberty that he promises. Also, the near the end of uh, the Frey administration, there's a massacre that takes place in the south of Chile in Puerto Montt um, that really um, solidifies, or if you will, sort of the final push um, or loss of legitimacy for the Frey administration, as well as uh, pushing the sort of more popular classes to. Um, be opposed to the Frey administration, be opposed to sort of the, the Christian democratic uh, message of reformism and decides to sort of give revolution a chance. Uh, and it's into that moment that Salvador Allende uh, reforms um, the coalition that, he, you know, the original coalition that he runs on was, was referred to as the FRAP. Um, he forms a sort of new coalition in the lead up to the 1970 election, which would be the Popular Unity Coalition. Uh, and it's a coalition of leftist parties, uh, primarily the socialists of which Allende is a member and the communists. Uh, and here it's important to remember in the Chilean case that the socialists are actually to the left of the communists. Um, the communists are a much more um, reserved approach to revolution, and, and by which I mean they're very much um, going to sort of have the, you know, they're, they're holding the party line, right? They're beholden to the common turn, right? But they are also very much in line with the Allende's, with Allende's view of legislating socialism. The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. I won! Yahoo! Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sort. High Five Casino is a social casino. It's on your phone. Goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. I won again. Platoon, present cell phone. High Five. High Five. Casino. Casino. Win at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant. AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code assistant. IBM. Let's create. Dad deserves something really nice for Father's Day. But let's face it, we usually don't do it. Big gifts are for Mother's Day. 
Picking something up on the way is for Father's Day. Well, let's make Father's Day something this year with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. It whips up over 60 premium cocktails on demand, each ready at the push of a button. And right now, you get $50 off the Bartesian Cocktail Maker when you buy one pack of Dad's favorite cocktail capsules. Dad will publicly love that you saved 50 on the countertop machine that crafts premium cocktails on demand. And he'll secretly love that you splurged on him for Father's Day with the gift of a Bartesian. Because the only thing that lets Dad know he's the world's number one dad better than a world's number one dad coffee mug is an artisan cocktail in his hand. Make dad's Father's Day and Father's Day cocktails with all natural juices and bitters without making any mess at all. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash father to get $50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's, I guess, another interesting aspect of this, because, like, that's something I, I think also doesn't get discussed very much, which is this period where, like, a lot of the, like, that that was the, the, the party discipline being imposed from Moscow for, like, a lot of this period, like, is explicitly telling them not, to, like, explicitly saying don't do a revolution, like, hold and stabilize the situation. Um, Is, is that the case with, like, because I, so I, I, because I, I, okay, this is, this is, again, going back to me knowing Italy better than I know. Um, Chile is is that is that something like how how long has that been policy from is is that like an old is that old popular front like stuff from them or is is this is it, have has it like because I know like like this U.S. policy too like so it's just like the Moscow line flips back and forth somewhat randomly depending on like what is going yeah, on. So you're you're totally right. It flips a lot, especially in that, that 1930 period and, and into the, you know, once they establish the idea of the popular front, that sort of does become the line. The big change is takes place in 1957. Um, there is a meeting of the common turn in 1957. And that's when the idea of individual national roads to socialism becomes the official mm. party line of the common turn. And that is what then authorizes communist parties across the world to seek their own routes to socialism, right? So it no longer has to be a Leninist insurrectional model. It no longer has to be a Cuban revolutionary model. Um, it can be its own. So that when Allende proposes this pluralist way of reaching socialism, that's what the communists will uh, link to. Um, and, and really, that's what they'll hitch their wagon to. And we'll, we'll tow that line throughout the three years, throughout the thousand days of the Allende government, um, which will then ultimately put them into conflict with the left wing of the Socialist Party, mm -hmm. uh, which is pushing for a much more radical um, a radical shift. And that's really the sort of context that the Cordones emerge out of in 1972 is this sort of growing factionalism, growing sect sectarianism within the ruling coalition of the popular unity. Yeah, I, and I, I guess this this is already going a lot of, or some of the way to explaining why this looks different than a lot of the other sort of like, or a lot of the other sort of socialist coalition governments you see around the world. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, partially also just yeah, the the influence of Yugoslavia is fascinating to me. Because I mean, well, because that, that explains that explains so much, right? Like that that explains why there's this sort of democratic component to it, even even in even in the sort of reformist periods, and it explains why the expectation is that, and not the sort of like even not even like like Soviet style nationalization. Absolutely, does not look like that. Yeah, so you're, you're right that you know that these these multifaceted, multi-layer influences globally as well as locally within Chile, as well as regionally. 
um, produce something that is the first time that, um, so for example, Allende's victory in 1970 is the first time that an openly Marxist candidate will be elected president of a nation, uh, elected democratically in a free and fair election that is not contested um, or anything like that. Now that said, he wins by plurality. He only wins by about in, in the 30% range. Um, now, historically in Chile, a plurality victory is not a problem because you remand it to the Congress and the Congress typically will just rubber stamp the victory. Allende, however, you know, there's a lot of apprehension about yeah. what he means for the country, what he means for the sort of landed elites, what he means for the sort of oligarchs that control the grand monopolies in Chile. Uh, and so there is a lot of tension. Well, this is also then where the actions of the CIA backfire. Um, so the work of the National Security Archive uh, has done great work for uncovering uh, the sort of two-track plan that Nixon and Kissinger have for subverting the election of Allende and then ultimately preventing him from assuming power. And part of those tracks was to sort of foment some sort of crisis. Uh, and so the crisis that they attempt to foment involves General Rene Schneider. And it is uh, the attempt is that they're going to kidnap him uh, and hold him hostage um, and use that as a way to prevent Allende from coming to power. Well, the problem is, is that that goes horribly wrong. The people that are carrying out the kidnapping are clearly unprepared uh, for what happens. Um, things go haywire and Schneider is assassinated. He's shot um, accidentally and later dies. <laughs> uh, and the problem then becomes, you know, the nation is horrified. The Chilean nation is horrified at this yeah. um, took place. And as a result, then um, ranks are closed around Allende uh, and it is decided that they will approve his um, candidacy, his election, and that he will be affirmed as the president. Um, and, you know, also what's happening in the background during the election and during the lead up to that vote is that the Popular Unity Coalition has its program, you know, what we would think of as a campaign um, sort of platform. Um, but part of the platform in the Popular Unity's case was what they referred to as the sort of basic agreement between the coalition and the, both the people of Chile, but also the political system, which in this basic agreement is sort of what we've been discussing this whole time, which is that Allende would not change fundamentally the political system, right? Any sort of nationalizations, any sort of economic restructuring that they would achieve or that they would um, try to achieve in Chile would be taken would take place would be used or won through the halls of congress right everything would be legislated everything would still be remain um the sort of chilean uh government as normal right this is where you get allende's famous phrase that the revolution is going to be with empanadas and vino tinto right with meat pies and red wine um which means you know it's essentially not going to be a revolution of deprivation right it's not going to be a revolution that fundamentally changes the structures of everyday life in chile this has been naked happened here join us tomorrow for part two of this interview where we walk through the chilean revolution the cordones and their lasting impact on chilean society if you want to find more of Nicholas's work, he has an article coming out in the next week or so in the Made by History section of the Washington Post connecting the revolutionary period and the broader struggle for a dignified life to the modern inclusion of social rights in the proposed new post-uprising Chilean constitution. You can find more of us at Happened Here Pod on Twitter and Instagram, and we have two new podcasts coming out. The first is Ghost Church, hosted by the inimitable Jamie Loftus. It's a, it's a deep look at the historical and contemporary practice of spiritualism and mediums who talk to ghosts. It is wonderful. Jamie is one of the best podcasters to ever do it. And the first episode is out right now. You can find Ghost Church wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Second, on May Day, which is, which is this Sunday, May 1st, the first episode of the great Margaret Kiljoy's new podcast, Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, is dropping. It's about what the title says it's the coolest revolutionaries desperados and ordinary people in the right place and right time doing extremely cool stuff and it's happening every monday and wednesday from here on out so go give it a listen when it drops on mayday it is going to be great and yeah it is it is, it is a great time to be podcasting there are there are many podcasts so go listen to them now after you're done with this one 
It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. High Five Casino Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at highfivecasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at highfivecasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at high5casino.com. High Five Casino. What's up, guys? This is Sean, Lights Out Merriment, and Saturday, June 15th, Lights Out Extreme Fighting 17 returns to Casino Palma in San Diego. Get your tickets now at LightsOutXF.com, and we'll be live on Lights Out Sports TV, available on all major platforms. Doors open at 5 p.m. Pacific. You don't want to miss this one. It's going to be Lights Out. Lights Out Sports is free sports TV by athletes for fans. For details about the event and tickets, go to LightsOutXF.com. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm going out with the girls this weekend. Nails, done. Outfit, stunner. And my skin? I know it's going to be glowing because I glammed up my shower routine with new Olay Indulgent Moisture Body Wash. It smells so luxurious and deeply moisturizes with its super rich, creamy lather that's bursting with vitamin B3 complex. So my skin glows and my confidence grows. Try new Olay Indulgent Moisture Body Wash for glowing skin in just 14 days.